You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we will pray together before we begin reading. Our Father, we pray that Your Word would have its rightful place here in our hearts and in this assembly. We want to be men and women with pure hands and a clean heart and who tremble at Your Word. We pray for the assistance of Your Spirit in making that so for Your glory's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, we're going to begin reading at verse 35, and we're going to read through the end of John chapter 1. And what I would like you to do is as we read through there, you're going to notice some names that you're probably familiar with because you've seen uh, these names and recognize them as the disciples. So what I want you to do is I want you to count on one hand or tally marks or however you want to do it, the names that you recognize that were from among the twelve, the disciples. And then keep that in your mind, that number. So pick out the names that you recognize among the twelve. Keep that number in your mind. John chapter 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And by the way, that's not the John of the the disciples. That's John the Baptist. Just so you don't count him and, and come up with one too many. And the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We've reached a point in the Gospel of John where we're starting to be introduced to some of the disciples. And anybody who is even in a beginning sense familiar with Jesus and the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus understands that at one point in his ministry, he gathered around him 12 men who were known as the 12 or the disciples. And we are in varying degrees, familiar with these different men. Uh, Some of these men we are familiar with only a little bit. James, the son of Alphaeus, for instance, we only know his name. 
virtually nothing else about him. Other men we are sort of somewhat familiar with, like Thomas and Philip, for instance. We, I say those names, you probably think of Doubting Thomas at the end of the Gospel of John, or Philip when he says to Jesus, show us the Father, and those type of episodes in the life of Jesus. And then other disciples we are very familiar with because they wrote some New Testament books like Peter and John. Um, we're familiar with Andrew and James. And then, of course, there's the notorious disciple that we're all familiar with, Judas. We're familiar with him, not for any good reason, but for all the wrong reasons. And so as we went through there, I asked you to identify the men who you recognize and are familiar with. So let me ask you a question now. How many of you, and this is a show of hands, not something you answer in your mind. How many of you recognize three or fewer names? Three or fewer. Okay, a couple. A couple. Okay, how many of you recognize four? Far more. How many of you forgot the number between the time that you, we read that to the time I asked you to raise your hand? Okay, how many of you recognize five? Only a couple. There's five. Now those of you who recognize three, probably recognize three because one is mentioned, his name is Nathaniel, and in the other gospel list he's called Bartholomew. And you wouldn't know that, that he has another name and it's Nathaniel, except for John chapter one here. But Nathaniel is Bartholomew. So that means four that are named, but there are actually five, and one of them is unnamed. Did you notice it? In verse 37, it says, two disciples heard him speak. That is two disciples of John the Baptist. Two of John the Baptist's disciples heard John say this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they followed Jesus. That's two of them. Now they haven't been named, but then you get down to verse 40 and you find out one of them is Andrew, and Andrew goes and gets Peter, and then Jesus finds Philip, and Philip gets Nathaniel. That's four. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. But one of them remains unnamed. Now, who do you think that unnamed man is? Do you remember all the way back at the beginning of John chapter 1, I said there's one apostle, disciple, that he appears throughout the book, but he's never named. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And most people think that this other disciple that is unnamed here is John, the gospel writer, the writer of this gospel. We know from other passages of Scripture, for instance, that John and his brother James were very good friends with Andrew and Peter. They had a fishing business together. They fished together. They lived in the same town. They were involved in the same occupation. Probably childhood friends attended the same synagogue, hung out a lot together. Those four, James and John, they were brothers. Peter and Andrew, they were brothers. Who is it that might be with Andrew, waiting for the Messiah, following around John the Baptist, who heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God, and has the ability to give us all kinds of detail about John the Baptist, by the way, when he finally writes a book, but remains very anonymous and unnamed. Probably John the Apostle, the writer of the book. So, there is in John chapter 1, five mentioned, five disciples mentioned, because I believe that the unnamed one was John the Apostle. Now, the person who put up the hand for five, did you count the unnamed disciple? Is that who you saw was the unnamed one? Oh, very good. You guys are very observant. Two of you. Uh, talk to Jess after the service. He'll give you a special prize for getting that right. Jess doesn't know that till just now. Uh, we've reached the point in the Gospel of John where we're beginning to be introduced to some of these disciples. And because the disciples play such a key role in the Gospel of John and in the life and ministry of Jesus... I thought it would behoove us, that's a word you don't hear much anymore, it would behoove us to become familiar with the disciples as a whole and just the twelve. So what I want to do this morning, 
is to look at the choosing of the twelve, why Jesus chose the twelve, who these twelve were, what was the significance of doing what He did, when did He do it, how did He do it, why did He do it, all of that. So today is basically one long introduction to next week's sermon, which will deal with verses 35 through wherever we get. Some of you saw the bulletin today and you saw John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51, and you thought, wow, we're going to go through the whole chapter. And you haven't been here very long, or you would have known that there was some trick to that, and that's the trick. Today we're just introducing the subject of the disciples in general. I'll tell you how I decided to do this. This is not something I planned to say. I decided to do this because my study this week took a radical rabbit trail, and here's why. I encountered a subject that I thought I knew a lot about, and that is the twelve disciples. And so I began to study the text, beginning in verse 35, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to pick up some resources and begin to study a little bit about the calling of these 12 disciples. And I found out a whole bunch of stuff, but I thought, I've got to share this with you so that the rest of the Gospel of John will make some perfect sense. So that's what we're going to do. Beginning in John chapter 1, verse 35, let's begin, first of all, to look at how John discusses the subject of the disciples. And John's treatment of the disciples and the 12 is very unique in two ways. First, John in his Gospel never gives a list of the twelve disciples. The twelve disciples are named in Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, and the beginning of the book of Acts. But John never lists the twelve disciples. Which is very curious to me because it's almost as if John assumes a knowledge of the twelve on the part of the people who are reading the Gospel. It's almost as if John knew that they had been listed in other books that Christians would be reading Because he mentions Thomas and Philip and Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel and James and John. He mentions all of those, John does. But without ever naming the twelve as the twelve. He sort of almost assumes that we know who the twelve are and that we can understand why these people are very close to Jesus and having the conversations with Jesus that they do. The second thing that's very unique about how John deals with the twelve disciples is even though he doesn't name the twelve in any list, John actually singles out some of the disciples who are very obscure in the other Gospels and spends quite a bit of time talking about them when the other Gospel writers only barely mention them. Take, for instance, Bartholomew. Now, his name appears in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in Acts, but John doesn't mention him in a list of the apostles, but we wouldn't find out anything about Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, unless we had John chapter 1. Nathaniel or Bartholomew, his name was uh, Nathaniel Bartholomew, that would have been his full name. Nathaniel Bartholomew is mentioned in John chapter 1 and John verse 21. Philip is another example of a disciple that's just mentioned one time in each of the other Gospels, just in the list. He's just listed. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we don't read of anything Philip said, anything Philip did, anywhere Philip went, any interaction that he had with anything, any accomplishments or anything like that. But in John, he's mentioned in John chapter 1, John chapter 14, or John chapter 6, John chapter 12, and John chapter 14. Thomas is another one. Only mentioned once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Just in the list. They don't say anything about Thomas. And we know him as what? Doubting Thomas. But we know him and everything about Thomas that we know, we know because John gives it to us. If it weren't for the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know anything about Thomas other than that he was one of the twelve. But Thomas is mentioned in John chapter 1, sorry, John chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 20, and chapter 21. And most interesting of all, John spends more attention and more time talking about Judas than Matthew, Mark, or Luke do. In fact, John spends more warnings, tells us more things, more warnings about Judas that were given by Jesus 
tells us more about Judas's betrayal, the timing of it, the location of it, and what was going on all around that betrayal than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And we know a lot about a lot of what we know about Judas. We know because John gave it to us in his gospel. So it's kind of unique, even though he doesn't give us the list of the twelve. John tells us things about other disciples that none of the other gospel writers bothered to tell. Sorry, to tell us. Now there are four lists given in the New Testament of the disciples. There is one in Matthew chapter 10, a list in Mark chapter 3, a list in Luke chapter 6, and in Acts chapter 1. The list in Acts chapter 1 is a little bit different because Judas is not listed. Because by the time the events of Acts chapter 1 occur, when he lists the 12, Judas already hanged himself and was dead. So only the remaining 11 are named. Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and Acts chapter 1. And if you were to take all four of those lists, which I did this week, and put them side by side, the order of the names, Matthew's list, Mark's list, Luke's list, and Acts list, Acts, the list in Acts, all four of those lists, you would notice something that sort of stands out immediately. And it's a couple curious things. First of all, you would notice that the disciples are listed in three groups of four disciples each. Three groups of four. These three groups always occur or always are listed in the same order. The first group is always listed first. The second group is always listed second. The third group is always listed third. And the same disciples are always listed in each of the three groups. There was a structure, in other words, within the twelve itself. So take, for instance, the first group. The first group consisted of four disciples. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Peter is always listed as the first person in that group. And among the four lists, the rest, Andrew, James, and John, are listed in various orders. In other words, the Gospel writers sort of alter the order of the other three, but never Peter. Peter's name is always first, indicating that Peter was the leader of the first group. Now, the second group always contains the same four names, and it's always the same four guys listed in the second group. And the first person listed always is Philip. And then the other three names vary between lists. And his group, Philip's group, included Nathaniel or Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. Those four people, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, always are listed in group two. Group two is always listed second. And Philip always appears as the first of that second group. The third list consists of the last four names. That's Simon, the uh, sorry, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who's sometimes called Judas, Though when he's called Judas, he's always distinguished as not Judas Iscariot. Thaddeus and the fourth, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is always listed last. And Judas Iscariot, when his name appears in the list, only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, always is distinguished as the traitor or the betrayer or the one who would betray Jesus. So you have three groups of four, the same four people in each group. Groups are always listed in the same order. And the same person is always listed at the head of each group. Now, what do you make of that, other than being sort of a statistical analysis of the 12 disciples? Here's what you make of it. Those groups are listed in that order because they, they, they uh, indicate the level of intimacy that Jesus had with each of the groups. Group one, we always see in the Gospels as being more active, more involved, more intimate, more connected with Jesus than either of the other two groups. Remember, group one is Peter, uh, Nathaniel, sorry, Philip, ah, try it again. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. 
They are always seen with Jesus in some of His most intimate settings. There are things that they were allowed to see in places they were allowed to be, like the Mount of Transfiguration, that the other disciples were not privy to some of those details. They had a more intimate connection with Jesus. They're more active, more vocal, more involved than any of the other disciples. The group two, which is Philip and Nathaniel, Thomas and Matthew, they are more intimate with Jesus than group three, but more distant than group one. And group three was the least intimate of all. That's the, the names that other than Judas Iscariot, the details are very scarce with those guys because we just don't see them acting and being vocal and being involved and being close to Jesus like we do group two and group three. So there is a descending level of intimacy between the three groups of the four disciples. The second key thing to notice is that in each one of those groups, one person is always mentioned first. In Peter's group, Peter is always mentioned first, and then the other names vary in order. Second group, Philip, is always mentioned first, then the other names vary in order. Third group, James, son of Alphaeus, is always mentioned first, and then the other names vary in order. Except Judas Iscariot, who's always tagged on at the very last of the group. Peter is always mentioned first at every list. Judas always mentioned at the bottom of every list. That indicates to us that there was within each group a leader within that group. Peter is clearly the leader, not just of group one, but of all of the disciples. You see Peter acting and leading the rest, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Whether they like it or not, Peter is the spokesman. Peter is out there. Peter's taking charge. He's a very ambitious, very vocal, very assertive, very forward type of individual who engages his mouth before his, his brain gets kicked out of neutral. Always in the Gospels, that's Peter. And he's out there sort of doing that, leading the rest of the disciples. Philip was the leader of group two, and James, son of Alphaeus, was leader of group three. They say, what does all of that have to do with my day-to-day living and what I'm going to do tomorrow morning at work as far as impacting my life and my sanctification? Likely absolutely nothing, unless tomorrow you play a game of Bible trivia and they happen to ask you that question. But it's a fascinating structure to the list of the 12 men, and I just want you to be aware of it. Within the 12, we have leaders within the 12. And we have a leader of the 12, and his name is Peter. Why 12? Have you ever asked yourself why there was 12 apostles named or disciples named? Why not 15? Why not more? Why not 24? There's 24 hours in a day. That would have been one disciple for every hour of the day. 24 is a nice, good, even number, kind of two dozen disciples. Why not 24? Why 12? Why not 15? Why not 7? Seven's the number of perfection and completion, right? It's always God's number. Why not seven disciples instead of twelve? Why not ten? Ten's a good even number. We add, we multiply, we understand things in groups of ten. Our whole, every number system, the number system is built on tens. Why not ten disciples? I kid my Canadian friends by saying that God is not, does not use the metric system because if He did, there would have been ten disciples instead of twelve. There's twelve disciples, which indicates that God uses the imperial system. Twelve inches and a foot, twelve disciples, it makes perfect sense. But other than that, is there really a reason why Jesus chose 12 and not 10, not 15, not 24, not any other number? And there is a reason. And it's a significant reason that might be lost on you and I. But trust me, every individual back then who lived in the land of Israel understood the significance of it, and it was not lost on them. How many tribes were there in the nation of Israel? Twelve, right? Now, what might Jesus be doing as he is choosing publicly 12 disciples. You know what he's doing? By choosing 12 disciples, Jesus is in essence pronouncing judgment on the apostate, wicked leadership of the nation of Israel. 
It is a sign of judgment. In fact, Jesus himself connects the choosing of the twelve with the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel for their rejection. In Luke chapter 22, when he says, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There was a judgment that is to take place. And these twelve men, Judas excluded, understand that as I talk about the twelve, Judas excluded, replaced by Matthias. I'll get to that in just a second. Judas excluded, replaced by Matthias. These twelve men will judge the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And they will sit in judgment over the twelve tribes, over the house of Israel. And when Jesus chose twelve, he was in essence setting aside the leadership of the nation of Israel, the entire religious establishment of the nation of Israel, and he was in essence saying, these twelve men are the new leaders of the new covenant. You have been rejected. You will be judged. I am building everything new upon these twelve men. That is what Jesus was doing. That is why twelve and not ten and not any other number. These twelve men would represent true Israel. Sons of Abraham by faith, not just by birth. These twelve men are the leaders of the new covenant. These twelve leaders are the foundation of the church. And Jesus, when He chose twelve, He set aside the entire apostate, corrupt religious system of the nation of Israel. It had grown corrupt. It had become corrupt. It was apostate. It had become a legalistic system of works righteousness, which was shot through with hypocrisy and greed and covetousness and power and idolatry and wickedness. It was filled with empty ceremony. And all of the Old Testament prophets, when you read of these empty ceremonies where the people give their animals and give their offerings, but their heart is not in it, the same exact thing could be said of the people of Israel at the time of Jesus. And Jesus, by going outside of the religious establishment and choosing 12 men, was setting aside and pronouncing judgment on the apostate nation of Israel. And He was in essence saying, everything I am building and everything I am doing as Messiah and as King is built upon these 12 men. Not on the 12 tribes of Israel, not on the leadership of the nation, and not on this religious system. And what's interesting to notice is that not one out of those 12 men came from within the religious establishment. Jesus did not go to the greatest synagogues of His day and say, give to me your best orators, give to me your most brilliant thinkers, give to me your theologians. He didn't do that. He didn't go into the schools of His day. He didn't visit the school of Gamaliel or the school of Hillel or any of the other great rabbis of the day or any of the great synagogues or, or learning centers of His day and choose the, the brightest and the greatest among them. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, He went completely outside of the religious establishment and chose 12 men who were religious outsiders in every sense of the word. And these men had nothing in common. The only thing we can find that might in any way remotely bind all 12 of, 12 of these men together is that four, possibly up to seven, were either part or full-time fishermen. The first group, for instance, Peter and Andrew, James and John, fishermen, all fished together. Uh, two sets of brothers lived in the same town, fished together, worked together, had a business enterprise together. But other than that, there was nothing that bound these men together. I mean, take Matthew, for instance, a tax collector who in the eyes of the people of his day was lower than a prostitute because he had purchased a, a tax franchise from Rome and his job as a Jew was to extort money from his own people and turn it over to the Roman citizens. And Matthew was outside of the religious establishment because he as a tax collector wasn't even allowed to come into the temple and offer a sacrifice. He was completely cast off, completely cast out. He was the lowest of the low. A traitor to his own people. Then there was the zealot, Simon the Zealot. 
And what was his job before he came to Christ? He belonged to a political sect that assassinated people like Matthew. Now, if you're Matthew and you've got a zealot in your band, do you turn your back on Simon the zealot? Not unless you're a fool, because before Jesus had encountered either Simon or Matthew, Simon would have taken the first opportunity to shove a dagger in the back of Matthew, the first chance he got. What bound these men together? From an earthly perspective, absolutely nothing. And you would look at these 12 men, and you would never, on your life, say, you know what? These 12 guys, they're going to change the world. You'd never say that. You would say, these 12 guys? This is a total dog's breakfast. This is going to be a total train wreck. Because from every human vantage point, this was the worst selection of men that you could possibly put together. And then to hand over to them a task as monumental as what Jesus handed over to them was totally and utterly unthinkable. It was the poorest selection of people you could possibly put together for anything. And yet, these twelve men are the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. These twelve men are the men whose doctrine and whose revelation from God form the canon that is the yardstick or the rule by which all doctrine, all belief, and all practice is to be analyzed and criticized and tested and evaluated. These twelve men became vehicles of divine revelation and God used them to inspire and write an inerrant, inspired, infallible, perfect New Testament revelation. These twelve men went on to found the New Testament church and in a span of about 30 years turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. These twelve men went on to perform signs and wonders and cast out demons and perform miracles which authenticated the men, the messenger, and the message itself. And these twelve men are going to be memorialized for all of time and eternity because Revelation chapter 21 says that the twelve, the new city, the new Jerusalem, has twelve foundation stones and on those foundation stones are written the names of all twelve of the apostles of the Lamb. So eternity will bear monument forever and ever to the sacrifice and the calling and the work and the labor and the significance of those twelve men in the new Jerusalem. Now I mentioned earlier, and I do have to mention, I do have to say this real quick because I, I said I would do this. Judas is not one of the twelve. So who is it that replaces Judas and becomes the twelfth disciple? I believe it is Matthias in Acts chapter 1 in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and Peter's accurate exegesis of the Old Testament prophecies that dealt with replacing Judas after he betrayed Jesus. I do not believe that the Apostle Paul is that twelfth disciple. He was an apostle, but not a disciple. He was one born out of due time. He was one that was not part of the eleven and not part of the twelve. He was an apostle in a unique sense for a unique purpose, but he didn't belong to the twelve. So the twelve is... The twelve minus Judas plus Matthias. And Matthias fills that twelfth role. And we dealt with that back in Acts chapter 1, which was only a few a little while ago. So I'm sure you remember that. Now why twelve? Because it was judgment. And it was a sovereign act of God and a sovereign choice of God by which he, in which He chose all twelve of these men. Jesus never took applications for apostleship or discipleship. He didn't go out and ask for volunteers. Uh, who wants to be one of my twelve apostles. He didn't ask for applications or accept them in. He didn't sit down and evaluate the qualifications of these men. It was by His sovereign choice that He chose all twelve of them. He knew what He was doing. He had a purpose for it. We'll get to that in just a second. He knew what He was doing, but it was a sovereign choice that Jesus made. In John chapter 15, He says, You did not choose Me. I 
chose you, and I have appointed you to go forth and to bear fruit. And he says that to the twelve. I chose you. This choosing, this office, is not of your own choice. It's not of your own determination. It's not of your own doing. This is something that I did. I have the power to do it. I have the authority to do it. And I have done it, and it's my sovereign choice. That's what Jesus told the twelve. You might read through John chapter 1, and if you're familiar with other passages in the Gospel, it's not going to read uh, anything similar to passages like Luke chapter 5, for instance. And it's easy when reading through the calling of the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, that you might read, that you might get a little bit confused and say to yourself, well, hold on a second, I read this in chapter 1 of John, but then I flip over to Luke chapter 5, and this doesn't look anything like it. In John chapter 1, Andrew brings Jesus to Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, you've been called Simon, but up to now your name is going to be called Peter. And then I flip over to Luke chapter 5, and it says that Jesus was on the seashore, and he pushed out in a boat away from the shore, and he taught the crowds there, and then he told Peter, put your nets in, and Peter pulled up the fish, and that's when Peter, Andrew, James, and John all decided to follow Jesus. But that's different than John chapter 1. And it looks different than Matthew chapter 10. And it looks different than Mark chapter 3. Are these different accounts? And some people have read them and said the, this, the gospel writers were confused. Each one of them describes this differently and no two of them are alike. These things are contradictory. And they're not contradictory as long as you keep in mind this one essential, important piece of information. It's this. There were different times and different, um, different elements to Jesus' choosing of the twelve. When Jesus chose the twelve, He wasn't walking through a crowd and just doing duck, duck, goose. You, 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 and you follow Me. And that was it. And He just selected them out of the twelve. There were different stages in Jesus' calling of the twelve. What we have in John chapter 1 is Jesus calling four of these men, or five of these men actually, if it's John the Apostle that's the unnamed disciple, five of these men to salvation and conversion. This is Jesus' first encounter in John chapter 1 with these five disciples, and He is calling them to conversion. He doesn't actually name them as the twelve until later on in His ministry when He will single them out, and that's when we get the list of the twelve. And that happens in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 10. But after the episode in John chapter 1, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they went back to their nets. They went back to fishing. And they became part-time followers of Jesus, not full-time followers. And Jesus' location was, was really sort of singular and very limited in its scope. He stayed in one area. And these men followed Jesus as they had ability, but they had full-time jobs. They had occupations. They had businesses. They had families. They had all of those things. It's not until later that Jesus singles them out and says, you, 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 and you, you are the twelve. It's not until later that Jesus does that. In John chapter 1, it's just Jesus saying, you, come follow me. Later on, out of a much larger group, Jesus will single out twelve of them. Now, how long did Jesus have with these twelve men? How long? Three years. Actually, no. That was a good guess. And that's what I thought until I started putting together chronology. And you know what I found out? What I found out was that Jesus' calling of the twelve did not occur until about halfway through His three-year ministry. Jesus trained and equipped these men and had only 18 months with the twelve privately, personally, where He was with them full-time. Not three years. That was stunning to me. You put together the chronology of the Gospels, the calling of the twelve in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, that calling happened 18 months into Jesus' ministry. In his monumental book, 
the training of the twelve, A.B. Bruce writes this. And this is worth noting. The selection by Jesus of the twelve is an important landmark in gospel history. It divided the ministry of our Lord into two portions, nearly equal, probably as to duration, but unequal as to extent and importance of the work which was done in each, respectively. In the earlier period, Jesus labored single-handedly. His miraculous deeds were confined for the most part to a limited area, and His teaching was in the main of an elementary character. But by the time when the twelve were chosen, the work of the kingdom had assumed such dimensions as to require organization and division of labor. And the teaching of Jesus was beginning to be of a deeper and more elaborate nature, and His gracious activities were taking on an ever-widening scope. It is probable that the selection of a limited number to be His close and constant companions had become a necessity to Christ in consequence of His very success in gaining disciples. In other words, the multitudes were following Him, and it was very difficult for Him to move and to teach as He did, and it was at that point during the successful part of His ministry that He chose the twelve. His followers, we imagine, had grown so numerous as to be an encumbrance and an impediment to His movements, especially in the long journeys which mark the latter part of His ministry. It was impossible that all who believed could continue henceforth to follow Him in the literal sense whether wherever He went. So the greater number could now only be occasional followers. But it was His wish that certain selected men should be with Him at all times and in all places. His traveling companions in all His wanderings, witnessing all His work and ministering to His daily needs. Only 18, minutes, 18 months did He have with the disciples. Halfway through, that's when He chose the twelve. Is that new information to anybody but me? That was new information to me. Radically new information. It's not how I pictured it at all. Now, no treatment of the twelve apostles would be complete without talking about the fact that the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do not in any way whitewash these twelve men. They are not the stained glass saints that the Catholic Church in the medieval era had made them out to be. Men who constantly walked around holy with halos and never sinning and, and august and powerful and strong. They weren't like that at all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very honest in how they portray these twelve men. They show to us all of their besetting sins, all of their failings, all of their inadequacies, their ineptness, their lack of every virtue that we might consider necessary for founding a church. For instance, the Gospel writers demonstrate that these twelve men had, a, had an incredible lack of insight. Jesus, after giving a parable or teaching something, would turn around and expect that the twelve would have got it. And all he would have got from them was a deer-in-the-headlights type of stare, like, could you explain that parable to us one more time? And then Jesus would sometimes chide them for their lack of insight. John chapter 6, for instance. Don't you get the message of the bread, the multiplication of the bread and feeding the masses? That was a message they should have got. And Jesus chides them for their lack of spiritual insight. Sometimes totally benighted. Sometimes almost to the point of appearing stupid. And foolish, these twelve men. Not only did they lack insight, but friends, they lacked any kind of humility. They spent an inordinate amount of time arguing about who should be the greatest in the kingdom. And James and John put their mom up to asking Jesus, hey, could you set aside two thrones in your kingdom, one on your right hand and one on your left hand for my two sons? Are you kidding me? And the rest of the disciples, when they heard that, they said, you, you on the right and you on the left, Come on. What about us? There's 12 of us. I deserve to be the one on the right and He deserves to be the one on the left. What makes you think you get it? And they would be walking along a road discussing who is greatest in the kingdom right after Jesus has said to them, look, 
I'm heading to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be mistreated by Gentiles and be handed over to be humiliated and shamed and I'm going to die a horrible, ignominious death and I'm going to suffer and die. All right. And Jesus would turn and walk away. Okay, so which one of us is going to be greatest again? I'm greater than you. No, you're greater than me. No. And on they would go. An utter, total lack of humility. Total lack of humility. They lacked insight. They lacked humility. They lacked faith. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to them, Oh, you of little faith. Mark chapter 4. How is it that you have no faith? Mark chapter 16, it says that Jesus reproached them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief because they would not believe those who had seen Him after He had risen. A total lack of faith. A lack of insight, lack of humility, lack of faith, lack of courage and power and strength. They had an inflated view of their own strength. Hey, we will follow you to death. And as long as the crowds were laying down palm branches and hailing Hosanna, son of David, to him, as long as the adulation and the praise was coming to the, from the crowd, they were pleased as punch. They were happy, thrilled, elated at this. But when the soldiers showed up, what happened? Like cockroaches when you turn on the lights is what happened. They all scattered. All of them except for Peter and John. Peter denied him, and it's not noted that John did really anything noteworthy of any courage. They were gonzo. Left him when he needed him most. These men were weak, powerless, total lack of faith, lack of humility, lack of insight, lack of courage and strength. The only thing noteworthy about them is that there was nothing noteworthy about them. What makes them unique is their total lack of uniqueness. They're the most ordinary people in the whole world that you could possibly imagine. In fact, friends, they're much like you and I. Right? Did I not just describe you? And the Gospel writers are very honest in how they describe these men with all of their besetting sins, their imperfections, their glaring hypocrisies, their total lack of spiritual virtue, their lack of power and insight, their ineptness, their benightedness, their darkenedness and their understanding, their lack of faith and understanding, all of that. So then you might say, well, then why didn't Jesus choose them? Why those 12 men? And you know why Jesus chose the 12? Because they lacked power, they lacked insight, they lacked humility, they lacked faith, they lacked courage, they lacked strength. That's why Jesus chose them. Because God delights in taking the weak things of the world to confound the powerful, taking the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, taking the nothings and bringing to nothing the things that are. God chose them because He wanted the power to rest not in the messenger, not in the eloquence of the messenger or the speaker, not in the vessel itself, but in the power of God and the Gospel and the message itself. God chose those twelve men because He delights in taking the weak and the those that are beset by sin and those that are powerless and those that lack humility and using them to confound all of the wise. That's why 1 Corinthians 1 says, it's not many noble, not many bright. Where's the debater of the age? In the church. And God still does it today. Look in the mirror and look around you and ask yourself, is this the stuff of which kingdoms are built? Look around you. Is this the stuff of which kingdoms are built? And the answer is yes. This is the stuff of which the kingdom of God is built. Ordinary people. Aren't you glad you're ordinary? I am. Because today Christ builds His church out of people like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the rest. Let's bow. Our Father, we do thank You for the reminder and constant it is of our own besetting weaknesses and failures. We thank You, God, that these things are great in our eyes, but little in Yours. 
and that you are able to use the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. We thank you that you have not chosen the mighty and that you have not chosen the great. You've not chosen the most eloquent, for if you did, we would certainly not qualify for your kingdom or your plan. We thank you that in your grace you have stooped down from heaven and chosen the weak and the foolish, for it is for those things that we qualify. We humble ourselves before you. We thank you that you bow and stoop to use ordinary men and women. We thank you for that reminder today and give us the grace of God to be faithful in what you use us to do and use us mightily for your kingdom's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.